So yeah. it, was a, it was an interesting exploration of learning even a little more about some of my family history and, and dove deeper, of course. And it made for some higher levels of authenticity that I could experience real time with the audience. In reflection, it also was emotional because I, I found myself feeling disappointed in myself because I didn't ask more questions like this of my family before now. Right, right. I'm still unpacking that. I'm still exploring that. And you know, I understand that. I understand the the self-guilt that comes with that unpacking. You know, the I think we all think we should have done more or we, we should have known more or how could we have been so protected? But you know, for me, that is the tragedy of racism. That's why it's difficult to move forward because we feel as if we missed something in the past, that we were hoodwinked, that we were blind. I hear that a lot from Peter too. Uh, I didn't know that. How did I not know that? But you said you became conscious of race when you were nine years old. To me, that's just human. And had you not had this incident where somebody else was perplexed by the disparity between the color of a child and father because of their cultural training, doesn't make you blind. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Dr. Nelson, good to see you again. So happy to be able to have a courageous conversation with you. And it'll be a, a fun opportunity. We've got a guest today. And again, want to thank all of our listeners. I want to thank Nationwide. And uh, I want to thank our producer, Nicole, who somehow takes all the stuff that we throw at her and edits it down to something that we can find useful. So, Phil. Thank you for joining me again today. Peter, I've missed you over the last week. I want to thank Nationwide for their support, this podcast. And thank you to the listeners. And I think we've got a good good show for you today. I'll let Peter set that up for us. So I've kind of sprung this as a surprise to Phil. I, I was talking to him about this, this individual who I met for the first time just in February in Las Vegas at a reception after the vet partners meeting. I was introduced by a mutual friend, Louise Dunn, and she said, do you know Rob Best? And I said, no. She said, well, he's in Los Angeles. I said, yeah, but there's a, there's a, like a wall between Orange County and Los Angeles. It's called the Orange Curtain. And so we don't usually cross that line. And even if you did, there are like, you know, 20 million people there too. So. Right. And in 40 million cars being driven by 20 million people. <laughs> And so Rob and I had a short conversation in Vegas, and we set up an opportunity to meet in Long Beach, which was the halfway point between where he lives and where I live, and, and uh, right just on the other side of the Orange Curtain. It was kind of like our first date. We really didn't know each other all that much, except for what we could find on social media. Rob may have known more about me, and I'll apologize, because I really had not known much about Rob. And it's like, 
we sat down for lunch and we became, in my opinion, kindred spirits. And I recognize that this is one of the best kept secrets in the veterinary profession, except for those hundreds of hospitals that he has been able to influence and hundreds of leaders that he's been able to influence through his knowledge and his skills and, and his passion. And I was in awe. And I, I was um, just really thrilled to be able to sit there and and chat for an hour and a half or two hours. And, and we had a lot of things in common and we had a lot of things that were completely different. But what we did have in common is a passion for the veterinary profession. And we've met for lunch a couple of times since then. And I've learned more and more about Rob. And I, last time we met was just after he did a keynote for Hills on Juneteenth. You know, he told me he was doing it, and I really hadn't asked why they chose him. Out of all the people they could have asked, they chose Rob. And, and maybe it's because his last name is Best, and they really wanted the best to do the keynote. I don't know. Sorry about the play on words there. But we got to learn a little bit more about each other, and, and I got to little watch a little bit of the keynote. But enough of me speaking, and I, I just really want to introduce somebody who I think has, a, has an interesting story to tell. He's not a veterinarian, but he is an influencer in the veterinary field. And, and I, I know he seeks to be an even greater influencer going forward. So without any further ado, Phil, let me introduce you to Rob Best, my new friend. Welcome, Rob. And if and any friend of Peter's is is a potential friend of mine's. I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put it that way. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm intrigued. He was very complimentary of you when we talked, and it was very easy to say, let's get him on the podcast and and let's share your story. Well, I, I appreciate you both. There's a lot of emotions in these conversations for me that I I don't often verbalize yet this is from what i have learned a great place to lean into those emotions and, and to talk them through so in addition to the two of you being so widely known and respected that alone builds excitement to to join a, a conversation today i'm also very aware of the fact that with peter's plan words you only have the absolute best guests on this show of course uh, <laughs> week after week for, for some time now, you've only had the absolute most intelligent, educated, witty, and, and none of them were available this week. So you called me. I'm <laughs> so happy that, that you did. And, and I'm excited to, to just lean in and have an open and courageous conversation with you both. So, so Rob, just to, just to make sure, uh, let me explain the rules of, of the podcast to you. <laughs> There are none. And I love the way you phrased it. We want an emotional expression of your opinions. And we want to feel our way through while our listeners are doing the same. Peter often creates the image that we're just sitting across the fence discussing the issues of the day. And that's what we want this conversation to be. So, Rob, we've probably talked for about six hours or so in, in a variety of different capacities, both live and virtual. And, uh, you know, you're right. Everybody else we tried to get on this week wasn't available. Why do you think I asked you to be on our podcast? What of your background that I heard do you think made me want to have you on our podcast? So you, you alluded to it, obviously, in the intro with the Juneteenth talk. And you have a very consistent 
curiosity in your conversations that I've experienced with you. You look for information, meaning, perspective. You really lean in and you ask a lot of targeted, open questions. And with with the intent that I receive in our conversations to, to simply learn and explore. And you did that with, with the Juneteenth keynote sharing prior to me heading out to Kansas, you did exactly that. And you had shared a little bit more about this podcast in that conversation as well. And that was the first moment that I gave you a little more information about why Hills asked me, and, and this was in the keynote, by the way, in the very beginning, for the, any listeners who may have zero clue who I am and have not yet Googled or searched and seen the visual, I'm approximately 6'3", um, somewhat thin, 180 pounds, Caucasian skin, long, straight hair, about shoulder length, former athlete, scruffy face with some salt and pepper color to it. And within the first few minutes of, of the keynote with the Hills audience, I, I posed the question, why in the world did your company ask me, a tall white guy with hippie hair, to keynote a Juneteenth event? It just, the, the, it, it was the obvious had to have been stated. So I put it out there. And you didn't necessarily ask that direct question, but we were, we were heading in that direction. And there was a, a very good friend of mine in Hills who knows a little bit more about my family history. And on one side, some people think, oh my gosh, wow. And then some people think it's comical and others will say, I knew it. For whatever reason, they say, I knew it. And I, I, like, I like the idea of the comical side. Uh, if you've seen the movie, The Jerk with Steve Martin, <laughs> There's a line in there where he says, I grew up in a poor black family. And it's one of my favorite movies because of that line, because those are my roots. My family grew up a poor black family in upstate New York. My biological father is black. My mother is white. I got my mother's skin, hair, got my father's height and physique. Um, you see us side by side. We've got the same. We are father, son. The bone structure that there's no doubt. I just didn't get the darker skin or the coarse hair. And that surprises a lot of people. And my friend Darren with Hills thought that would be an ideal plot twist for the audience to lean in with a little more interest and intrigue. So if I was able to create some energy and some emotional safety in the room, it, it might it might land well with the audience. That was our idea going into going into Kansas. And that's where your conversation with me on the topic began to include some additional interest. And so, brother, now that you have <laughs> exposed your, your family secret, if you've listened to some of our podcasts, you've heard me say that race is a myth. And I love the way you expressed that you think you got your hair from your mother your skin color from your mother. But I want to tell you that your father may not have been black as we think of it either genetically. And some of his hidden secrets may have come out in you too. That is the, the narrow diet that we think of race when it applies. I can't wait until you share with, with us and the audience your other experiences as a white looking black man. 
by the way, you do pass the the brown paper bag test, and so you can join the elite black societies in New Orleans if you wanted to. All right. So can you explain to me, the white privilege guy over here, what the brown paper bag test is? In the black communities, particularly in the 50s, when African-Americans were actually attempting to assimilate in white society uh, with an effort, and we would have we would conk our hair in order to look like Rob's. As a race, we had adopted the mentality that the blacker you are, the uglier you are, the lighter your hue, the more handsome and beautiful you were. And there were some Black social groups that literally would discriminate against African-Americans of darker hue. And in some cases, I am told that the brown paper bag was used as the litmus test. If you were darker than the brown paper bag, you could not be a member of certain social groups. So, so Rob, you're from upstate New York. I, I grew up in New York as well um, on Long Island. Where in upstate were you? Just outside of Buffalo, born in, in Lockport. Tonawanda is where my family lived, my immediate family. My grandparents and that extended family was in a little town called Salamanca. To my knowledge, it's the only city in the United States where the entire city is an Indian reservation. And back in the day, my family was the only Black family in the, in the city at that time. With, with all the potential complications that may have come with that, they, they experienced. Prior to that, my father's side of the family, Dr. Nelson's point, came through or from Haiti. So by definition, there's, there's, I'm half Haitian, yet there's a lot of unknowns in my lineage there, hence 100% accurate, Dr. Nelson. There, there's some, some, some hidden DNA, perhaps, with my father as well. Uh, but I was very young when my, when my mother and father moved west to California. San Bernardino County is where we first moved, and I was, I was in grade school. I was maybe seven or eight years old. Too young to really know any different, but old enough to know that I didn't want to go back to the blizzards in upstate New York. Phil and I have talked throughout our podcast of him growing up in, in Jackson, Mississippi, my growing up just outside of New York, and the differences that we had. You grew up in a mixed family in Buffalo. Now, but you were fairly young. Where did the Black community fit into Buffalo at that stage? Because I'm guessing you grew up in the early 80s in, in Buffalo. It was it was early 80s. You know, I was so young and ignorant to the, th this might be a factor too, I'm colorblind. So <laughs> me too. <laughs> figure out, right? Yeah, so that, that, that worked well. Black, white, colorblind, as, as I should be. I really had no sense of race when I when we were in New York. I remember the very first moment vividly that I realized my mother and my father were of different skin colors based on general visual definition. And it wasn't until after I was in Southern California. So to this day, looking back, the best information I have is stories that I hear from family members, whether it was prior to my birth, you know, I mean, literally all the way back to when my mother and father dated in high school, and at some point had to stop dating because you can't date outside your race, not in that town, not at that time. You know, people talk about how close we are to the history of racism and slavery, et cetera. And, and you hear references of, oh my gosh, how are people not realizing why 
there are still open wounds. My great grandfather was enslaved by X, Y, Z or stories of that sort. And I think my parents, my, my parents had to stop dating because you couldn't do that at that time. So yeah, I, I, I don't have personal experiences, perhaps due to my age, perhaps for whatever reasons I haven't explored. Maybe this conversation will help me explore that a little more. But it was it was here in Southern California when I first had that experience. And what was the defining moment here in Southern California? You had to move out west in order to suddenly discover what blackness meant. Yeah, I was at a basketball camp. I was a kid at a basketball camp. It was a day camp. I don't remember. It was either it was you know the Lakers were eighties, right? Lakers. I know I went to Byron Scott's basketball camp for for those who are Laker fans and Michael Cooper's defense camp. And it was one of those two, I believe. And my father was picking me up one day and I'm sitting in a group with some of the kids that I was in camp with, you know, there's hundreds of kids there. And I see my father walk in the gym to pick me up. I say, you know, all right, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. My dad's here. And they said, well, where's your dad? And I said, he's over there. I said, where, where's your dad? I said, he's over there. Which one's your, he's right. There. They said, that's not your dad. That guy's black. I said, what, what, it, it was a it was a mind flip. I had no idea. And I never even had the conversation with that. I said, hey, dad, they, I just internalized it for an unknown reason. But that was the first moment that I had any recognition of, I wouldn't say race in general, but race inside my home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I don't know, I was maybe nine years old, 10 years old. What was the diversity of the camp? Very diverse. It was for anyone in, in the Los Angeles area, your assumptions would be accurate. More diverse city. It's, it's basketball, right? Basketball, definitely more prominent for my experiences in the Black community at that time. And it was reflected in the camp. So I think the group of kids I was sitting around, I'm guessing maybe there was 10 of us. And I'd say at least half, if not more of them were, were Black. It was one of the Black kids who said, that's not your dad. He right <laughs> Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was an interesting moment. Have you been back to upstate New York? I have. I don't go often. I, I, I still have family in upstate, but I haven't, gosh, I haven't been back in probably 10 years now. I'll go to the city for business. I have some family in the city, so I'll get to see them when I when I head there. Otherwise, no, not not often. I'll go more to your neck of the woods. Yeah. Give us some of, some of the flavor of your Juneteenth. Hmm. Yeah, this was this was fun. this was a personal, as you can imagine. I, I've I've been sitting on some material that I've been wanting to build out, and this request gave me an opportunity to to lean into it. It also gave me an opportunity to explore some of my family history a little further. The experience itself was was awesome. It was just it was a lot of fun for me. The audience had a had a had a great time. The conversations that that occurred after were wonderful. I wrapped the whole thing around a, a story that connected the last living Buffalo soldier to Richmond, Virginia, the, you know, an epicenter of slave trade and the Buffalo soldier mantra of we can, we will, you know, we can being an attitude and we will being a conscious decision. And, you know, we did some academic stuff around unconscious bias and, and how your attitude alone influences your environment and, and people leaned into that. But the the story of, the Buffalo Soldiers and this idea of we can, we will, and attaching it to the current environment was where we really had some fun. And 
you know, some of the ancillary stories included some early open loops about, you know, me, the, the tall white guy, never being asked to leave a church because of the color of my skin or never not being served at a restaurant because of the color of my skin. You know, and I, I'm sharing with the audience before I let them in on the on the the secret was I don't know why you asked me to be here either. <laughs> is, is it because I have friends in Hills? Maybe, but that doesn't make sense. Is it because um, I was profiled in college as an athlete? And athlete, I wanted to be a writer at one time, and I wrote a paper, and this professor chose to not accept my paper. And her reason, almost word for word, was there's no way an athlete can write this well. You plagiarized. Oh, my goodness. Okay. That's still not to the extent of what you might experience because of the color of your skin. I can, so I, I created some open loops early in the conversation that at the end of the conversation, I was able to close because my Aunt Marie was asked to leave a church in media Pennsylvania and she chose to stay in the same church pew for 50 years and when she passed away 50 years later one of the most diverse community churches you could ever imagine is what came together to celebrate her life which included choosing not to leave that that church pew um, the same Aunt Marie was not served at a restaurant and was approached by a woman who befriended her and together they started a nonprofit organization called the Media Fellowship House. And this organization, nearly 80 years later, still stands today and serves the diversity of the community in many ways. One, just how do we come together for a greater good? Two, they, they provide services for housing and scholarships. And, and the housing is personal because... My Aunt Marie wanted to move her family to Media, Pennsylvania, because in Media at that time, they had a better school system, and she wanted her kids to have a good education. It was a white community, and they literally had signs, we want whites only in our white uh, uh, neighborhood. They wouldn't, sell, they wouldn't sell my aunt's family a house. So this other family who had befriended them decided to buy the house for them, and then allowed my Aunt Marie's family to buy the house from them. So they were still able to buy their own home, but they had to do it in this roundabout way just so her kids could get access to better schools. Yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was an interesting exploration of learning even a little more about some of my family history and, and dove deeper, of course. And it made for some higher levels of authenticity that I could experience real time with the audience. In reflection, it also was emotional because I, I found myself feeling disappointed in myself because I didn't ask more questions like this of my family before now. Right, right. So I'm still unpacking that. I'm still exploring that. And you so know, I understand that. I understand the, the self-guilt that comes with that unpacking, you know, the, I think we all think we should have done more or we, we should have known more or how could we have been so protected? But, you know, 
For me, that is the tragedy of racism. That's why it's difficult to move forward because we feel as if we missed something in the past, that we were hoodwinked, that we were blind. I hear that a lot from Peter too. Uh, I didn't know that. How did I not know that? But you said you became conscious of race when you were nine years old. To me, that's just human. And had you not had this incident where somebody else was perplexed by the disparity between the color of a child and father because of their cultural training, doesn't make you blind or even colorblind. You saw your father as your father. That's the way it should be. Yes. Not as a black man, but as your father. And when society has developed these arcane, artificial rules of, of engagement that a nine-year-old suddenly discovers that my father is an alien, hmm. that is, that's the tragedy. That is the tragedy. And it is interesting to, to hear the subtle differences in how you discovered your social blackness and what it really meant. I think I was seven when I discovered I was black. And that discovery occurred when the mother of my white friend told me I was getting too old to come through the front door anymore. Wow. And that I couldn't play on the front porch anymore because I was looking like a young black man at seven. Hmm. And I became, you know, menacing almost. And I'm not as tall as you. I've never been... A, you know, uh, a physically gifted person. And so we all have these different experiences, but it's about our social structures. And it creates baggage psychologically for us when we find out that while we were enjoying life, other people, not so much. What was the racial diversity of your friends during your childhood, young adulthood, and now? It's interesting. I've I've had a consistency of what I would consider a diverse circle of, of people. Some I would consider friends, some acquaintances. I've often found it challenging to feel related to others, perhaps. Regardless of race? Regardless of race. I've had a, a fairly, I wouldn't call it easy, I would call it consistent ability to help others feel related to me. I have not had the same consistency in feeling related to others. And with that mindset or with that, that dynamic, the groups of people that I was by choice or otherwise from young adulthood to more of a choice in adulthood has been consistently diverse. And one of the biggest reasons was yeah, at, at some point early, I mentioned I was at a basketball camp, Sports, sports, just one of those things that came easy for me. And basketball was that one sport that really called to me. And at that time in the area where I lived, it was predominantly a black community who was playing basketball. Mm -hmm. And the areas where we had lived were also predominantly black. And so that was my world. And I felt comfortable in that, even if it wasn't as much comfort with an individual, that space, that environment felt really good to me. And one of the reasons was, of course, a quicker level of general acceptance because 
I was pretty good with this basketball. <laughs> I could dribble it and I could put it in the basket. And even if I walked up to a part and people initially had the reaction of, you know, don't let the white kid on your team. Even if I sat three or four games before I got on the first game, the moment I got on that first game, you were in, I was in and everyone's reactions and responses to me in general shifted really fast. So you were the anathema to white men can't jump. Yeah, to an extent. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you had a secret, you had some secret sauce. There was a little bit of sauce. There was a little bit of secret sauce there. My father had a basketball background as well. He was uh, he was a very highly decorated athlete to the extent where they would the, he played all sports. He's six five, super long, athletic, left handed, all the things. He was in his in his day a version of a athletic freak of nature, and in high school they would change the athletic event schedules specifically so everyone would get a chance to see him and whatever, whatever he was doing. So if a basketball game conflicted with a track of, with a track event or a track meet, the school district would change the schedule to make sure he was able to do both. Wow. So yeah, there was a little secret sauce in the, in the DNA. That's for sure. So yeah, there was a, there was a consistency of, of a, of a mix with, with my environment. And I, even if I didn't again, feel related to the individuals, I felt very comfortable in that environment. In adulthood today, if I, this is interesting, you know, your courageous conversations began, if I, if I recall correctly, shortly after George Floyd's uh, passing. And I think a lot of us have had courageous conversations of our own. And I have one very, I mean, this is more of my brother than a friend. And we, we, to this day, continue to just dive into these conversations for hours. You know, he's a, he's a 6'5", 6'6", black man, former basketball player. His father played in the NBA for a long time. He has this presence of a large black man. And everything that comes with that, he's also very highly educated. Princeton now works in banking. And he's just a very curious individual. And one of the, the interesting pieces that he and I continue to unpack with each other, and he relates this, when I'm today, if I'm in a room full of people who are predominantly Caucasian, I feel uncomfortable. No one will recognize that. I'm very uncomfortable in those rooms. If it's, if it's predominantly fill in the blank with just about any other visual, and I feel really good. I feel excited. I feel comfort. I feel encouraged to engage. And that, for me and him, it's been an interesting topic that we continue to, to talk through. How often do you go into a room and you're not the tallest person? Ah, well, in the basketball circles, I'm usually the shortest person. Right. Starting it right. In the veterinary uh, field, they're not a lot of six foot three veterinarians. In the, it's in the vet field, very different. And I'm, I'm very aware that simply walking into a room, I, I have a presence and I'm mindful of that. And most of the time, my mindfulness helps me to be intentional. And part of the intent is to disarm 
and help people feel comfort and some emotional safety with, with my presence. Hence, a lot of the work that I now do is in the realm of emotional intelligence and psychological safety. So yeah, very, very interesting detail. In the Juneteenth, you were seated on a bar stool mm -hmm. rather than standing. Yes. Your choice, June, or Hill's choice, or made sense based upon the environment? No, I asked, I asked them to bring me a stool. You know, we were there, I was there for her rehearsals in the morning. I, anytime, anytime I can, and Peter, you and I have talked about this, anytime possible, I will, I will, I want to get into the event space. I want to get comfortable with the space. If there's an opportunity, I want to interact with a few people, right? And, and part of it is just to be social and, and help them feel comfortable with who they've perhaps hired. The other part, and Peter, you shared this to me, you do, you do this also. I'll take notes so I can reference individuals during the experience uh, while I'm on stage. And so hours in advance, as I'm getting comfortable with the space, one of the one of the few requests I made almost immediate was I need a I need a stool. Can't be too high, can't be too low. Uh, <laughs> but I, I I need to be able to sit with, I want them to feel like I'm seating, like I'm sitting with them. And it's it's less of a because of the stage presence, it's less of a line of sight with eye contact and more of a impression of he's here with us as opposed to he's here to speak at us and that's not specific to the juneteenth topic it's something i do consistently depending on the size of the audience etc variable um a variety of factors very interesting you called that out they had so much they were planning for they didn't even question why i wanted the stool <laughs> they, like just get him a stool he'll he'll be fine yeah a lot of intention behind those details the reason I asked the question, which was seemed totally irreverent and irrelevant, was you mentioned your discomfort in a room that's primarily white. Mm -hmm. And my thought was, you probably would feel uncomfortable in a, in a room because you're probably three to four inches taller than the average people that mm -hmm. you are speaking to as well. So the ultimate question is really, is there a difference in your discomfort? You know, how deep in the gut is it with the white room versus with the height room? Oh, that was illiterate. Yeah, but I submit that he's probably taller, even when he's in a non-diverse culture of any kind, because he mentioned that he's more comfortable there. He's right. still just as, just as much taller than that group, too, because he's unusually tall. So ex except for, as he said, the basketball environment. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, there, the, the, the specific difference for me here is if I'm on stage, I'm in a position to influence a room of people, whether it's five people, 500 people or 5,000 people. And I'm in that space. I'm very comfortable, regardless of audience. I'm very comfortable and I can read and adjust to the audience very well and very quickly when I'm not the person on stage or at least front of stage or center stage. That's where it changes for me. So it can be the same, the same group, regardless of what the visual is of the individuals or the makeup of the group. If if I'm simply in the room, there's there's a there's a variety of levels of comfort. Yes. If I'm on stage, no, that I'm, I'm in my element. 
vulnerability here for a moment. When I'm on stage, it's a safer space for me because I'm in control. I'm taking you on the journey I created. And that that safe space for me is like my bubble of comfort, right? People get nervous and anxious with the idea of public speaking. That's a safe space for me. Public speaking is I'm in my element, I'm in my bubble. And I've I've perhaps stumbled or failed or fallen my way into being somewhat capable of designing and delivering experiences that people enjoy. And they actually have some tools or resources they can go do something with. And, and all of those things feed a level of comfort for me, specifically because there's a there's an emotional distance that I can keep, I can maintain. Peter, when you and I have our one-on-one conversations, that the trust blocks are, are building with each interaction. In this room, I don't have to worry about trust blocks. I, I just need to help them feel safe with me. I don't need them to do anything for me in return. Right, right. And that, that's a safe space. It also makes it easier for me to have conversations around topics that might be uncomfortable for some people. Right. You know, I'm in this, I'm in this bubble. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's another piece to my growth is, is it, is it time to start finding out how to get out of that bubble? And, and can that help me create even stronger lines of authenticity that can connect to the audience, you know? Have you ever been in a situation with a diverse group where you were able to observe a um, an act of discrimination or bias, and it was and it wasn't directed at you because you were mistaken as a white man? Can you describe one of those for us? Yeah, yeah. I've, I these are constant in one way and not as constant in another. The constant is I'll hear comments or jokes or one-liners regardless of intention that will have a sometimes undertone of racism and sometimes very direct in racism. And 99% of the time it's because they don't think there's anybody around who might be offended or otherwise everyone here is white i can tell a black joke everyone's here i can tell a i can use these words i can and that that started in high school i started hearing a lot of that in high school okay. and by the time i was in high school you know but i think by my sophomore year i was i was i was getting some attention with athletics and people started to pay attention to my dad, who would come to all my games, of course. He stopped telling people he was my, he, he would tell people he was a scout. I'm just here scouting. I think it was just to be funny, but if I was around a group of kids and someone starts telling one of these jokes or making comments about the black race that, that we identify as a black race, th- someone else would be the one to tap on the shoulder, like, hey, you, you should stop. You know, his, his, <laughs> right. That that's constant, still happens today, all the time. The interesting one that I I find interesting on the other side, and this is back to where I'd go to a basketball court and I'm the only white kid walking up to the court and nobody wants to let me play. The moment I would get on the court and 
within moments after all of a sudden there's more acceptance. I felt the same way in that moment that I felt each time there's a bunch of white kids and someone's telling black jokes who doesn't know about my father. I felt like you're, you've changed your behavior in my presence or at least around me or even toward me based on your perspective of the color of my skin. And, and I don't like you, <laughs> mm. you know, I don't know if I was old enough to think like, do I not respect him? Do I not trust him? Do I, I couldn't unpack it that moment. And it was probably just too much emotion or, or maybe I didn't know how to lean in because I hadn't had any of these conversations at the time in my mind at that time, I knew I just don't like you. I think this is this, this, this one bucket, I think is a experience as a kid for me at that moment, I identified it as racism. And I thought the same about the other buckets too. It, that definitely kept me at a, at a distance in general with just not feeling like I can trust people. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, and I, I 100% still carry a lot of that with me today. It makes it more difficult for me. This is part of what I mentioned earlier. I don't find it easy to relate to others. I can help others feel relatable to me. I find it difficult to relate to others. So yeah, I've, I, I experienced that often for some obvious reasons and maybe some not so obvious reasons as well. It's a great spot to take a quick break. Thank our guest, Rob Best, for his insights and his candor, his authenticity. Make sure to join us next week as we continue our conversations with Rob Best. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.